Okay. Good morning. And today we're here with uh, Michael Bedard. Michael Bedard is a graduate of the Pepperdine University School of Law. He's been a, a leader in the area of uh, civil litigation, but primarily in the area of insurance bad faith, along with his two partners, uh, Ricardo Echevarria and William Chernoff, who sometimes referred to as the godfather of insurance bad faith in the state of California. So, Mike, how are you doing today? Pretty good. Thanks, Brian. You too? I'm doing all right. And what we'd like to talk about today and share with other lawyers is just this whole overall field of law of insurance bad faith. How would you summarize it for us? Well, I think the, the best way to summarize it is that it's dealing with a contract, that is the insurance contract, but that the courts over the course of time came to realize that this kind of a contract is very special and unique and therefore deserves special remedies. Because when you buy insurance, you're, you're paying money and really getting nothing in return. In fact, you're hoping that that which you're buying never gets used. And so if the, then the insured against peril occurs, which for many people, like I use the example of a homeowner's policy. When you buy a homeowner's policy of fire insurance, you're not buying it and hope your house is going to burn down. You're buying it, hope you never use it. So you're paying this money forever, oftentimes never using it. So the court said, if it happens and then they don't do the right thing, then there should be special enhanced remedies because of that special relationship. Kind of like a fiduciary relationship? It is. In fact, that's what the, the courts don't quite get to the point of saying it is a fiduciary. They say it's akin to fiduciary, which for all intents and purposes is the same thing. Now, for a lawyer, a younger lawyer maybe that hadn't handled these cases, what are they looking for to determine whether someone has a meritorious insurance bad faith claim? Well, it, it always starts with the four corners of the instrument where you got to get the facts, really clear handle on the facts, and then you need to get the insurance policy and there's no substitute for reading it with all of the endorsements. And then, of course, you need to be aware of what the law is relating to that insurance policy. So if they're citing, for example, to an exclusion, classic example right now going on in the health insurance world is their insurance companies are in effect practicing medicine by making determinations that certain procedures recommended by a treating physician are experimental or investigational and not medically necessary. And so you have to start with the policy of insurance on how they define it. And then of course, the treating physician to defend the recommended procedure. Okay, that's a good explanation. But you brought up uh, doctors. I know that, and I believe it was in 1999, you won a landmark case for a county employee in San Bernardino. Can you just tell us a little bit about that? And, and then I want to do a follow-up question. Okay. Well, that case had to do, first of all, with a government employee. Uh, he was a deputy DA uh, who had a really rare form of cancer. And his coverage provided through his work as a DA required him to seek and obtain all of his health care within the network. And he did exactly that. But the doctor within the network was ethical 
and he told uh, the Dave Goodrich was his name. He told him that they didn't have anybody in network who knew how to do this bone marrow transplant procedure, which would be cutting edge treatment that was recommended by the implant physician. And so he wanted that and they just horsed him around. Basically they messed around with it for 18 months, running it through their little system. And by the time they got through that, then they said it was denied because it was experimental. And of course, by then his cancer had metastasized. So that was kind of a classic nightmare of a claim handling situation. And so then taking it from there, you know, the damages I, I remember that was partly was the time that he would have been able to spend with his family had he had the treatment and had it worked. Obviously, that was somewhat of a, a, a legal issue or actually a factual issue that you had to overcome at trial. But punitive damages, I know you received a large award. And why, why are they important in, puni- in insurance bad faith cases and how do you obtain a, a punitive damage? You know, really, that's a great question because that whole area has really changed. In fact, changed since that Goodrich case. In that case, of course, uh, the, the most I could get out of the treating physician expert was that had he gotten the treatment recommended, it probably would have only extended his life 14 months. But the jury was so offended by the terrible claims handling, the insensitivity, that they imposed punitive damages. Punitive damages, of course, uh, for, for years, going back to the 80s, the United States Supreme Court, every session since 1986 was dealing in one form or into the other uh, arguments by corporate America that punitive damages were unconstitutional, either violating the excessive fines clause, the due process clause, or whatever. Uh, and interestingly, the United States Supreme Court continually resisted those attacks. And for example, the very conservative members like Scalia and Thomas said, hey, you know what, there's nothing in the Constitution about it, and it's a state's rights issue. And they became uh, allies of the the liberal side of the, the Supreme Court. But then finally, in 2003, the United States Supreme Court decided a case that for the first time dealt with insurance and punitive damages, and that's Campbell versus State Farm. That case has been a real problem because most people after that case came out said that the maximum amount of punitive damages as a ratio to compensatory damages is single digits or nine to one, presumptively, unless there's bodily injury involved like in some of the cases, your cases that you do. Uh, but absent bodily injury, as there was none in Campbell versus State Farm, it was a it was a case where it was an excess verdict and required someone to go into bankruptcy. But there was no bodily injury to the court. Uh, in that case, they reduced the punitive damage award, which had come out of the Supreme Court of Utah. million award on a million dollar compensatory, they reduced it down to $1 million. (laughs) And so, uh, but but the the decision there then has really dramatically affected uh, the penalties for bad faith conduct. In fact, it's emboldened the insurance industry to be able to evaluate a claim and say, hey, if 
the individual damages are modest, they can take a chance with it because they know their maximum exposure isn't as great as it used to be. Hey, let's go back to the Goodrich case. And I know that the U.S. Supreme Court had not decided the single-digit ratio yet. But in the Goodrich case, how much were the compensatory damages? The jury awarded $4 million plus okay, change. $4 million. So because you said there is an exception, and I know this didn't get to the court, but right. bodily injury, would Goodrich's, Mr. Goodrich, the deputy district attorney, would his damages have satisfied the personal uh, injury type requirement? That's what we argued. It was like wrongful death. If you kill someone, then there should be that enhanced, that enhanced remedy. And then in, if that were the case, hypothetically, how much were the punitive damages awarded? Like 116 million. Okay, so that was say 20, more than 25 times. Right. But theoretically, based on what the Supreme Court says told us, that that single digit ratio would be taken into consideration, but would not necessarily wipe out the verdict as being excessive in your case. Right. If, if you had a court that was going to follow the law, that's the case. And by the way, in California, you have the, the, the Ford Motor case and you have the Simons uh, case. The shoot, that was the Buell Johnson, Wilson. Johnson versus Ford Motor Company. Very good language in that case. So, but why is it, why are punitive damages important in the area of insurance, bad faith, and why is restricting it, making it more difficult for lawyers holding insurance companies accountable? I think it's important because it serves as a deterrent. And I've had this conversation with, off the record with honest defense lawyers who, well, you know, have admitted to me that it is absolutely taken into consideration. It affects the way they value the, the case. And without that, you just don't have the same deterrence for the conduct to keep them from doing it in the future. And, and would you agree that with the punitive damages out there, it's certainly going to make the defendant more likely to try to resolve, take care of your clients and resolve the case versus uh, facing large exposure for punitive damage, even though they know in the long run that you're probably not going to be able to collect all of the punitive damages. Yeah, for, for sure. Uh, there's just no question about that at all, that it, it does, it's front and center in their evaluation of the cases. While we're on that punitive damages, I know the court has really paid a lot of attention recently to once you can prove the type of conduct, and in your case, you know, uh, would be pro primarily fraud, but when you prove that, uh, how is it that the court uh, allows you to hold up with the verdict? What, I mean, what, what hurdles do you follow? Well, historically, uh, you know from your practice as well that the, the, the sole issue for the second phase, in the first phase under 3294 in California, you're deciding malice, oppression, or fraud in the disjunctive. Any one of them gets you there. That's for the first phase. Historically, the only fact that comes into the second phase is the financial condition of the defendant. Uh, and then it's discretionary the court to give the instruction having to do that it must bear a reasonable relationship. Uh, my argument on that is that given the current state of the law, the entire finding is infused with that question. But now 
the financial condition of the defendant, when you, when you compare that, which was the historical key factor, in other words, the notion was a sensible one that, first of all, the punishment should fit the crime. And number two, it has to be meaningful to that defendant. Otherwise, it's not a deterrent. Uh, and so you could have a really egregious wrongdoing, um, but, but uh, if you have now a, a, a limitation, an arbitrary limitation, a bright line that says that's only four to one, uh, which is kind of the conventional thing after the Supreme Court and Campbell, then, then it's not meaningful if you have a really ultra-wealthy defendant to only have to pay four times the compensatory. And so that's why there's this tension between the financial condition and the egregiousness of the conduct. I think that was a great explanation of the, the problems that lawyers are facing today in this area. In closing here, for young lawyers, old lawyers, anyone that a client comes into their office and they have a, an issue with an insurance uh, case. Number one, it seems to me, this is a very specialized area of law. Would you agree with that? Yeah, it is. Like it or not, it is. And, and lawyers that handle these cases not only have to know about punitive damages law, but how insurance coverage applies, and there's many, many intricate areas of law. There, there are. And, and, and also, not only the case law, but, for example, in the cases involving homeowners' coverages, for example, some of the cases that arise out of the fires that you and your firm are doing, the, there's all kinds of very intricate regulations that apply to the uh, rules that apply to claims handling and the timeliness of the claims decisions and all of the things, the reporting requirements. So there's a lot of, those are potentially treasure troves for proving bad faith conduct because the carriers oftentimes don't train their people properly. So the wrap it up. A lawyer gets a call from a, from a potential client regarding insurance issue. What should they do? Well, first of all, they have to conduct a thorough interview to get a really detailed history. No matter what kind of insurance case it is, you got to get good facts. Get the client, if they want you to consider their case, put it in writing. And then if, if the nature of the case is such that the lawyer has to evaluate himself or herself. Do they have the expertise to deal with it? For example, someone comes into me and asks me about estate planning issue. I mean, uh, there's no way. I know the minute I look at that that I, I don't know what I'm doing. It's I not for you. So same same applies here. They got to call people that you know understand it. But isn't that your experience today in the practice of law? That it's hard to be an expert in everything and. You want to have a lawyer that specializes in the area in which you're bringing your case. Right. A lawyer that specializes in the area. And nowadays, it's one thing good about the internet and all the search capabilities is you can find out good, solid information on a lawyer in a matter of minutes, you know, from publicly available information. I know you're very busy. We really appreciate you spending a few minutes with us talking about insurance law, insurance, bad faith, and you've been one of the most successful lawyers in the country in that area, and I know you'll continue to do it, and thank you so much. Thank you, Brian. I feel the same about you.